We're in Acts 27 tonight, one chapter away from completing. You know, back in chapter 23, verse 11, after a particularly difficult uh, and argumentative time, um, it says in 23:11, but on that night immediately following, that's following all the, the arguments that were had over Paul's life, the Lord stood at his side and said, take courage. For as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, you must, so you must also witness at Rome. So that's, that's a great, uh, we looked at it then, it, that's a great uh, encouragement in the midst of, of garbage. None of us have that kind of encouragement though. God hasn't told us, oh, look Lance, you're going to go through all kinds of garbage, but at the end of it all... You're going to sit tight in this beautiful retirement home in Florida somewhere. I don't, it, I don't have that. You don't have that. And in the midst of it all, we could go, yeah, you know, God told me I was going to retire with a couple million dollars and no bills and my health. Everything was going to be great. That's not on the table. What are we promised, though? Eternal life with him. Presence of him until we get to eternal life there. Uh, there are many promises in Scripture, but none of us has been and told. Don't worry, Lance. Look, at difficult times are there, but don't worry. You're going to watch your grandbabies get born. I mean, that'd be nice, but I'm not, I'm not promised that any more so than you are. So with this promise in mind, that makes it a little bit, makes it a lot unique. Uh, something's either unique or it's not. It doesn't have to be a lot unique. One of a kind. So when we get to chapter 27, uh, Paul has sat in jail for a couple of years. And you'd think that by the time it's time to set sail for where he's supposed to go, Rome, that Paul might be able to order up a few things. You know, you can pray for anything, right? Lord, I'd like a warm meal. You know, put me on a, a nice cruise ship over to Rome and uh, I really need some a comfortable bed. I've been through hell. If anyone could have said that, it could have been Paul. We've done that, right? Lord, I really need some rest. You know, can you help me out here? I need a good vacation down in Cabo or something. No, God may promise to get us some places. He does here, and he's going to take us into eternity with him. But along the way, getting there, well, that's, the, that's where we come in. That's what we have to endure. So chapter 27 is long. I'm going to read it in its entirety, make some comments throughout as I normally do. And uh, we're going to see, we're just going to relate this, as many do, to, uh, to life itself and the storms of life. On the overhead, uh, here's, the, here's the picture of it. Uh, start over there on your, on your far right. Uh, you've got Paul over here. He's going to set sail from Caesarea. He's going to go up there north of Cyprus and uh, follow that red arrow. They, go up, they come up there to the southern side of Asia Minor, modern Turkey, to Myra, goes over to it looks like it's C-N-I-D-U-S. It's pronounced Canidus, just so you know. Uh, Canidus, I know. You want to say Sinaitis, and I, can I buy a vowel somewhere in there? But uh, it's actually pronounced Canidus. Um, impress your friends with that one. Uh, go down to Crete, and they, they're going to stop there. And uh, they're supposed to weather there, or, or winter there, I should say. But they don't. They go out, they get lost at sea, and they're going to end up at Malta by the time we get to chapter 28. It's a rough time. Uh, it's gonna, we're just going to relate this to life storms. Also, I want you to think in terms of this is the ship that they're on. This is the basic ship. Um, 140 feet long, these ships normally were. It's an Egyptian grain ship that they pick up when they get to, uh, actually they change ships when they get to the southern portion of uh, Asia Minor. 36 feet wide. So think about that. 140 feet long, uh, 36 feet wide, about 33 feet high. 
Uh, it has no rudder. These things have got some uh, kind of like udder type things that's sticking out, uh, or type things, I say, sticking out from the stern. Um, two great paddles extending. Uh, one mast from the middle, big, uh, usually a, a square sail and perhaps one at the front. But that's, that's the ship. That's what he's on. It's going to be a slave, not a slave ship, but in a prisoner ship. And they're going to take what we'll find out. There's 276 of them making their way from Caesarea to Rome. Chapter 27, verse 1. When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, they proceeded to deliver Paul. Remind you, let's go back just for a minute and remember who's writing Luke. Who's he writing to? A Roman official named Theophilus. And what he's trying to explain is here's how early Christianity unfolded. Here's how it went. And throughout Luke's writings, he always puts Rome in a very good light. Rome is never the bad guy, per se. Um, Rome is always the one trying to protect Paul in this, in this regard. And it's going to be no different here. Also, I want you to see it from the standpoint of a historical perspective. There have been a handful of skeptics throughout the centuries who have gone through the book of Acts and had no answer for the accuracy of Scripture other than whoever wrote this was there, knew exactly what he was talking about, what he was writing about, right down to the details that he gave. And I love that. The details here are amazing. Someone who was an eyewitness, and, and we know Luke was. So when it was decided we would sail for Italy, they proceeded to deliver Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. So Julius is going to be the, uh, the main man that, that Paul knows here, that Paul is uh, he's a centurion, and he's going to be very endeared. He, he likes Paul. Uh, we're going to see that throughout this. And he's going to give Paul some leeway. Remember, Paul is an unconvicted Roman citizen. And embarking on an Adramidian ship, which was about to sail to the regions along the coast of Asia, we put out, so we, that's Luke writing in the first person, we put out to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica. In other words, Paul met uh, this gentleman named Aristarchus in, uh, um, when he planted a church in Thessalonica back in Acts chapter 17. Also, Aristarchus, he's going to call Aristarchus when he writes uh, in the book of Colossians and in the, the, book, the letter to Philemon, he says, Aristarchus is my fellow prisoner. So Aristarchus goes with Paul and is with Paul during his imprisonment while Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, the church in Colossae, uh, to Philemon and to, what's the fourth one? Philippians. Those are the four um, prison epistles. The next day, verse 3, we put out at Sidon. And Julius treated Paul with consideration and allowed him to go with his friends and receive care. Now, that's not what you do with prisoners. You go, you stop at a port. Paul, you can go, go out with your friends. However long they're going to be there, he trusts Paul. And remember, Paul is not under the same kind of arrest as the other prisoners. From there, we put out to sea and sailed under the shelter of Cyprus because the winds were contrary. When we had sailed through the sea... Through the sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Mycenae. I'm going to go back up to the other slide so you can see that. Um, through Pam this is Cilicia and Pamphylia. I'm pointing to my screen here. You can see exactly where I'm pointing, can't you? <laughs> you, see, you see Cyprus, just north of Cyprus, that little channel right there. That's Cilicia and, uh, and Pamphylia. So that, that's where he is. Uh, and again, these are very, uh, very specific from an eyewitness account. Our, our, all of that is to say our scripture is what we have, what God has, has uh, preserved for us is accurate. We hold the word of God written by eyewitness, uh, given to us by eyewitness accounts. Uh, we landed there at, My, at Myra and Lycia. 
the end of verse 5. Verse 6, there is there the centurion, that's Julius, found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy, and he put us aboard it. When we had sailed slowly for a good many days and with difficulty had arrived off Canidus, remember I told you that's how you pronounce it. I learned that by listening to uh, the Greek text being read to me, Canidus. Um, since the wind would not permit us to go further, we sailed under the shelter of Crete off Salmoni. So you see Crete, Crete down there. So you go through that little channel. You go up, they change ships there at Myra. They go to Canidus and they come down to Crete. During the time that they're sailing, you have to deal with the winds. And they're trying to beat a certain time of year. Because once, once you hit September, cloud cover comes. The winds are, are not good. You want to winter for a while. And that's where, where they are. And they're trying to beat that and get to Rome. But uh, Paul's going to advise them to, stay, to slow down. They decide to keep going. And they're going to suffer for it. Uh, and with difficulty, verse 8, sailing past it, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. When considerable time had passed, and the voyage was now dangerous, since even the fast was already over, that's the fast of the, uh, of the, the Day of Atonement, which is September, October-ish. Uh, they did lunar years. The reason we say September or October is because their years were lunar. Sometimes it would fall in September, sometimes it would fall in October. It's by the, by the moon, not the, um, not the sun. When considerable time had passed, and the voyage was now dangerous, since even the fast was already over, Paul began to admonish them. And he said to them, Men, I perceive that the voyage will certainly be with damage and great loss, not only of the cargo of the ship, but also our lives. But the centurion, that's Julius, was more persuaded by the pilot and the captain of the ship than by what was being said by Paul. That's not saying, hey, you're a dumb prisoner and we don't listen to you. Uh, no doubt the pilot of the ship is, they need to get where they're going, probably for a financial gain. Paul, sit tight. We're going to do what we're going to do. Be a dumb thing to go against an apostle, you know. Then and now when God's word is written by apostles, still a dumb thing to go against the apostles. Because the harbor was not suitable for wintering, the majority reached a decision and put out to sea from there. If somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete facing southwest and northwest and spend the winter there. So you see over there, there's Crete. Um, Phoenix right over there to the, to the far western side of the island of Crete. They're hoping to winter there. Verse 13, when a moderate south wind came up, supposing that they had attained their purpose, they weighed anchor and began sailing along Crete close inshore. So now it's, uh, I think we can make it. Uh, the weather looks fair, but little, bit, little do they know that beyond the fair weather that, was, that existed then, it's going to get rough. Verse 14, but before very long, there rushed down from the land a violent wind called a Uroquillo or a Northeaster. And when the ship was caught in it, they could not face the wind and it could not face the wind. By the way, that ship I showed you, the one thing it can't do is sail against the wind. Others with multiple sails can, this one cannot. And so they're going to be driven along by it. We gave way to it, let ourselves be driven along. Verse 16, running under the shelter of a small island called Clouda, we were scarcely able to get the ship's boat under control. After they had hoisted it up, they used supporting cables and undergirding the ship, and fearing that they might run aground on the shallows of Sirtis, they let down the sea anchor, and in this way let themselves be driven along. So apparently, along the way, they think that they're going to hit bottom, and so they're wrapping cables, cables underneath the hull of the boat to try to hold it together. They know they're in deep trouble. Paul, however, remember... He's been guaranteed, I'm going to Rome. I don't, he might be thinking, I don't know what's going to come to this. Maybe I'm going to float my way over there, but I'm getting to Rome. God said so. 
Uh, verse 18, the next day as we were being violently storm-tossed. Anyone ever been on the, on the ocean, sea, and you've been violently storm-tossed? Would you try to put yourself in that position? If you've ever been seasick, you've never been sick until you've been seasick. Right? Um, I was a buddy of mine, deep sea fishing, and, and he said, look, if you get sick, we're going to drop you off on one of these oil rigs, and we'll come get you, you know, tomorrow. But, and I said, seriously? He said, yeah, we've done it before, because you get so sick, being dropped off on one of the oil rigs actually looks good. Uh, apparently, I, thankfully, I, didn't, I never got sick on it, but you just get them there, they just lay out there like a slab of meat. And they stopped throwing up. So this is where they're going. This is what's happening here. So uh, the next day they were being violently storm-tossed and began to jettison the cargo. And on the third day they threw the ship's tackle overboard uh, with their own hands. In other words, just as you, any particular weight, whatever weight is on the boat is going to take it a little bit lower. It's going to sink it a little bit lower, closer to the ground, closer to the time where the, where the hull breaks up and everybody is outside the boat and into the sea. Verse 19, on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands, since neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small storm was assailing us. From then on, all hope of our being saved was gradually abandoned. When they had gone a long time without food, now, right there, I mean, it's, it's, in, it's not specific, but what are you like when you've gone a long time without food? Angry? Hangry, right? Hungry, angry. This is, this is, it's over, it's 276 prisoners plus the crew. It's a lot of angry men, but at the same time, when you're that sick and you've been storm tossed, perhaps being hungry is not factoring in, but it is painting a pretty grim scene. But when we had gone a long time without food, then Paul stood up in their midst and said, this is hilarious, really. Men, you ought to have followed my advice. Never miss an opportunity to tell someone when they should have listened to you. <laughs> I mean, right there, they probably should have killed him. That, that's where his, all the times they should have been mad at him. This is not when they were. Men, you ought to have followed my advice and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this damage and loss. Yet now I urge you to keep up your courage. For there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night, an angel of God to whom I belong, whom I serve, stood before me. Now, this is just surmising. I don't know. I'm not telling you it is, but I think the angel of God, he's talking about, I think he's talking about Jesus. I, I, it might've been um, maybe, maybe saying Jesus of Nazareth to all these prisoners and to the crew might not have gone over well. They might not have known who Jesus was because earlier it was Jesus who stood by him. Um, I don't think Jesus is saying, look, I talked to Paul last month to send the angels there to go talk to him. I think it's Jesus, but he's just saying it's an angel of God to whom I belong and to whom I serve stood before me, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul, for you must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted all of those who are sailing, all, all those who are sailing with you. Therefore, keep up your courage, men, for I believe God that it will turn out exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on a certain island. Now, if someone stood up and told you, Hey, I got a visit from an angel last night. And that angel told me that da 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 da, -da. What, what is your first reaction? This guy's a kook. He's, he's hearing angels. Here we are. We're about to die. And your angels are something about Paul, this apostle. What he said is encouraging. Julius doesn't throw him off. Um, he's, not, uh, he's not thrown into the, into the lower part of the, of the boat. He's not thrown overboard. 
Paul has been given by God uh, an, an ability to draw attention to himself for, the, for God's glory. He's been given the ability of leadership. And that's what he's using. He's demonstrating. When all is lost, when all hope is gone there at the end of verse 20, an apostle of Jesus Christ stands up and offers hope. But he's telling him, we must first run aground on a certain island. My question would be, look, if you've got an angel and you serve the risen Lord Jesus Christ, can't he just get us to Rome? Can he? Of course he can. But he doesn't. That's not the way it works. And too often people are angry at God for these things not happening. Lord, could you have, you could have done all this without all of that, right? Um, that's what we call, I've got a slide later, I'm talking about it from my own looking in the mirror, and that's uh, process-oriented. I'm goal-oriented. God's a process-oriented guy. I like to just get me there. Be done. If that's where you're taking me, Lord, if I'm going to die and live happily ever after, let it happen now. And let it be quick and easy. I don't want to be around here. But God's got a process for my life as he does with your life. And the process involves persecution, trials, difficulties, things that are unfair. You relate to any of this? God could do it. God does do it. Verse 27, when the 14th night came, that's two weeks there without food, without all the things they were enjoying, as we were being driven about in the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors began to surmise that they were approaching some land. They took soundings and found it to be 20 fathoms. A little further, they took another sounding and found it to be about 15 fathoms. Fearing that they might run aground somewhere on the rocks, they cast four anchors from the stern and wished for daybreak. But as the sailors were trying to escape from the ship, that's the sailors. This is, this is a, a ship full of prisoners. The sailors, however, have all conspired together. Let's get in the dinghy and let's get out and just leave this ship to crash. They're prisoners anyway. Let them die. Verse 30, but as the sailors were trying to escape from the ship that had been let down the ship's boat into the sea, on the pretense of intending to lay out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men remain in the ship, you yourselves cannot be saved. So Paul's watching it happen. And he's telling them, look, the promise I was given by the angel is that unless these guys stay on the boat and don't get off and try to abandon ship, they're going to die. And they listen to him there. They listen to him once again. Verse 32, then the soldiers cut away the ropes in the ship's boat and let it fall away. That's the, the dinghy, the, you know, the getaway boat. Verse 33, until the day was about to dawn, Paul was encouraging them all to take some food, saying, today is the 14th day that you have been constantly watching and going without eating, having taken nothing. Therefore, I encourage you to take some food, for this is for your preservation for not a hair of your head, any of your heads will perish. Eat, you're not going to die. Doesn't mean that people didn't lose a hair or two. I think we shed those every day. It's a little figure of speech saying you're going to be fine. Having said this, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of all. Don't think this is the Lord's Supper. I mean, you give thanks, give thanks to God. These are a bunch of prisoners. They don't know Christ. It's not the time to take the Lord's Supper. But to give thanks for what God has given, he does. He broke it and began to eat. All of them were encouraged, and they themselves also took food. All of us in the ship were 276 persons. Now, who knows that except the eyewitness who's there? 276. It doesn't say it's about 50 people, maybe 100 or so. There's 276 persons. When they had eaten enough, they began to lighten the ship by throwing the wheat into the sea. 
Again, we've got to lighten the ship. So that wheat was going to be one. It's a grain ship. They're going from Asia Minor to, to, uh, to Rome. They're no longer going to make any money, but they're trying to get there with their lives. And any weight they can get rid of, they can give themselves uh, a closer way or a little more time to get to land once they see. Because if it's 20 fathoms, then it's 50, and obviously it's getting more and more shallow. So they're trying to make it as close as they can to some kind of land. Verse 39, when day came, they could not recognize the land, but they did observe a bay with a beach, and they resolved to drive the ship into it if they could. And casting off the anchors, they left them in the sea, while at the same time they were loosening the ropes of the rudders and hoisting the foresail to the wind. And they were heading to the beach, for the beach. But striking a reef where two seas meet, met, two seas met, that's... Um, I, I, I read a couple of different people writing about this, commentaries, and uh, they just talk about uh, this is the exact location, this is exactly where this happens, where two seas meet. They're right off the coast of Malta, uh, right there in the, um, near Rome, near Italy. Uh, but they're just talking about one guy's name is uh, Sir William Ramsey. William Ramsey, back in the 1800s, took this route. And he went to every place that's spoken of here and found that everything Paul said was exact in detail, right down to where two seas met. And when they did, they ran the vessel aground and the prow struck, stuck fast and remained immovable. But the stern began to be broken up in the force of the waves. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners so that none of them would swim away and escape. I read uh, where if a soldier escaped, whatever that soldier's penalty was to be, Whatever soldier was responsible, that soldier would, would suffer the same fate. So we've got to kill these guys so that they don't get loose. They're, they're breaking out of this, this boat that's coming apart. But the centurion, verse 43, that's Julius, wanting to bring Paul safely through, kept them from their intention and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to the land. And the rest should follow, some on planks and others on various things from the ship. And so it happened that they were all brought safely to land. So reading the text, long story, long narrative of what's going on, and you wonder, once again, as a teacher, how am I going to teach this? There's really nothing here, I say very little here to find, to say here's what you do, here's a circumstance, here's what Jesus says to do. It's just a description. It's a, it's a trip from point A to point B. It's our life from birth to death. And all the garbage that goes on in between. That, that's what it comes down to. Or an episode in our life. Maybe it's just a, a little, little chapter of your life. Point A to point B. Here's where I was. And here's what the, the course of events that led me to where I became and what I became. And I think every one of us can relate to that at some level. Maybe it's just one year out of your life. Maybe it's 50 years out of your life. Maybe it's five minutes. Some people's lives change in five minutes. There's five minutes of your life you remember the most. Someone asks you what happened, tell me about your life. Well, let me tell you about the five minutes or the five days that happened to me. You know, I might be 85 years old, but it was just five or, or 10 days in your life. Well, what would that be? What did you learn? What were those trials? What did those trials do? What did those events do to make you who you are today? Now, you could say it's your marriage. Have you been married as long as some folks in our church? 50, 60 years in some cases. Over the course of 60 years, I had one family in here, they'd been married for 50 years. And, and uh, you know, she, both of them said, look, well, our marriage is about, it's a, it's a lesson in forgiveness. 
I've never forgotten that. It's about forgiveness. What do you mean by that? Well, we've learned to forgive each other almost every day of our lives. Because you do that in marriage. You offend one another. You say things you don't mean. Heck, you say things you do mean. You just wish you hadn't said it. Uh, That's probably more often than not, right? But you say that stupid lie by going, oh, sorry, I didn't mean it. Yeah, yeah, no, you really did. You you putting on some weight? I didn't mean that. I didn't mean that. No, you did. <laughs> and, and don't you? I mean, all of us who've been married, we've said some things, or, or maybe a friendship. Uh, maybe we've said something to our, our, our families, mothers, dads, children. Ah, these are the, the little highlights of our lives that, that make us and mold us. And so what we have here, at least from a teacher standpoint, is something on the trials of life. My wife told me, let's see. She told me today what I was going to, to preach. She said this. She said, application for tonight. <laughs> God promises to bring us to our destination, but he never promises smooth sailing. Isn't she brilliant? Isn't she brilliant? Did you read that in a book or did you just come up with that? Oh. Thank you, Todd. Wouldn't that be great? So how can you be so calm in the midst of all this? Well, as I said earlier, two years earlier, 2311, we read in Acts 2311, Christ appeared to Paul in Caesarea telling him to take courage for he would bear witness to the Savior in Rome. That's where you're going. So Paul knew it. He knew it all along. I had a a, a, um, husband, wife, uh, friends of mine before I was married back in the day when I wondered if there would ever be a woman for me. And uh, the woman, she said, Lance, do you believe that God can provide you the woman? I said, yes. Do you, do you believe that, that he will? I said, yeah. She said, then why don't you just enjoy the day? Don't worry about anything. If you know that he can and he will, then relax. That's good advice. Good advice. That's good advice. Then I give it right back to those of you who are worried about getting married or wondering if anyone can ever love you, um, is that God knows that person, you know, whom you will marry. You may think you know who it is. It might be someone different. Um, but you can rest and relax. God knows. What about looking for a job? Uh, if you're the breadwinner in your family, God has promised to take care of us. He's promised to take care of us. Trust in him. He will. So you've been without a job for a while. You know what? Does God uh, not want you to get a job? No. God wants the man to take care of his family. It's going to happen. You believe it'll happen? You're going to stress out every day, getting up, wondering, where's my job? Where's my job? Lord, I need this job. I got rejected from six more jobs today. Lord, what's the deal? Or are you going to wake up and go, I'm not going to do anything because I know God's going to give me a job? Uh, Somewhere in the middle is the answer, isn't it? I'm going to do my part. I'm going to do what I can do. Then I'm going to rest. Go have some coffee. Might have an afternoon nap. Since I don't have a job, I can get an afternoon nap. Anyway, the point is being calm, knowing that God's in control based on his promises. In Corinth, Christ came to Paul in a vision. He said, do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. No one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. Later in Rome, Christ would again stand with Paul at, right before his execution. Paul says that in Second, in Second Timothy 4. He said, no one was with me, but Christ stood with me, which is interesting, isn't it? It's always been one of the saddest passages to me in Scripture. We think that Paul must have been surrounded by other godly men and women. He wasn't. He was all alone. His friends abandoned him, 
And uh, when he died, he died alone, uh, with the exception of Luke being there. God has said, the writer in Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Never going to be alone. We don't have to worry about being left by God or forsaken by him. That's what brings a calmness. Calmness comes about, I think it's just the fruit of absolutely trusting God, right? I never forget my dad. We moved in this big house when we were young. I was, I was eight years old. My little sister was four. And uh, we didn't even have my other little sister then. But it's a big house. And we, my little sister and I, we went upstairs. And you just hear everything in this house. We had moved from a little 1,300-square-foot house to probably 3,000-square-foot house. And you just hear all these creakings. It scared us. And uh, I remember my dad sitting on the stairs with us. And he goes, nothing is going to get to you unless it gets through me first. Nothing. You going upstairs and you sleep in your bed. Nothing gets to you unless it gets to me first. I'll never forget my dad saying that. Uh, and and I, I like that because obviously something could get to my dad and kill my dad, but not to God. I'm never going to leave you. I'm always with you in your darkest times. Paul knew that. And those were dark times for Paul. But even with God's promises before us, we know that there will be storms, hardships, high seas, breakdowns, but also peace, assurance, fruitfulness. And the sustaining presence of God. You know it if you've endured it. The darkest times in your life. Think about them. Think about what you went through. And how you sought God. And how God made his presence known to you. In Matthew 14, recall that Christ came walking on the stormy sea in the midst of the storm to calm his disciples. The very sea that Jesus sent them to. He sent them out and he stayed back. The storm comes on the sea and they're out there wondering, we're going to live or die. We're going to die. And Jesus decides, I'll take a stroll on the water. Walks out on the water. Hey, come on. You want to jump out of the boat? Get on out of the boat. Come on. Trust me. And Peter does. Trusting until he looks around. Holy mackerel. I'm standing on water. There's waves the size of the Empire State Building. He loses faith. Begins to sink. Jesus, get on up. What are you worried about? I'm right here. There's nothing to be worried about. God leads us to these storms. He leads us to these storms so he can show us the storm is nothing for me. I have this. God did not put us here to save us and then kill us, to just bring us to heaven. That is not the goal. The goal is for our holiness and his glory. And that's what these storms, these difficulties are in life. F.B. Meyer wrote, if I am told that I am to take a journey that is a dangerous trip, Every jolt along the way will remind me that I'm on the right road. So every time in a marriage, God, God ordains marriage. And every difficulty you have in marriage, know that that means God has put you with the right person. What? I thought everything was supposed to be great. Whoever told you that was never married, number one. And number two is a liar. We never fight. Well, that's a problem. You're supposed to fight. You're supposed to disagree. I mean, fight, yell, and throw things at each other. But to grow. You, how long have you been married? 53. Richard, 53 years. You ever had a fight? You ever argued? <laughs> you ever had a disagreement? That's what I thought. John and Carol, anything over there? You ever an argument? Peaceful. Okay. Peaceful, all of us. <laughs> William and Vicky married to such a sweet lady, you'd never get in trouble, right? Yeah, a couple times. All of us, we, we've got battle scars over. We could lift our shirt and show a heart that's been battered and bruised. Our feelings hurt, right? 
And, and yet we're either going to run away from that or we're going to let those things build us. You have to learn to say, I'm sorry. Don't you? You have to learn to say, I'm sorry. I can't believe how many people I talk to who cannot say that. It's the worst tasting word in their mouth. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I was wrong. Uh, That's the way you're married. I was wrong. I admit it. Um, The jolts along the way tell you that you're, you're on the right path. As every Christian should be, Paul was anchored to God's promises, calm and cool, in the midst of life's storms. That's the way we're supposed to be, trusting God. So why is there no voice from God for us? I mean, some people think they hear voices, and and I'm not saying that God can't speak to us in a voice. I'm not one that says that's absolutely out of the question. He spoke to the Apostle Paul um, and told him details like this. He wasn't just speaking to him Scripture, speaking to him about what's going to happen. Did he need to tell Paul? Paul, you're going to make it to Rome? Could he have not just left Paul in the dark as he leaves me in the dark about where I'm going in the next two or three years? I think he could have. But God can speak. Just be careful of what you think it is that is God speaking. Be very careful. So why no voice? I'm assuming that he doesn't. We can become aware of God's presence by sitting still in the midst of life storms. I know this firsthand. Just sitting still. Not fighting it. Seeking the gentle assurance of the Holy Spirit through reading the Word of God. Remaining alert in God's presence with us in the midst of our storms is is vital to surviving the storms of life and for our witness to others. People are watching. Those prisoners are watching Paul. Those sailors are watching Paul. No doubt they had stories to tell when they got to Rome. I mean, if one of those, a couple of those sailors got back to Rome and their wife, man, I got to tell you about a guy I just met. I I don't know if, if he's playing with all his marbles, but the guy was steady. He did this. He said that. He got bit by, we'll see him get bit by a snake here in Malta, apparently a deadly snake, and he just shook it off like it was nothing. Those have been some great stories because it was a great witness that Paul gave them. He was anchored to God. And when we're anchored to God, we won't be able to do anything except display divine courage in the midst of earthly storms. People are watching. My mother told me that when I was a kid. People are watching. They're watching what you do, how you, how you behave. One of the things I'll never forget, I was a third base coach. If you've ever coached Little League Baseball, and I mean four-year-olds, you know, they, don't, they, don't even, they don't know anything. They don't know why they're running to bases, but they're having fun. And, uh, and I was coaching third, which is to say I was, a, I was an adult standing on third base. And there was a ball that was thrown in, and a kid slid, and the ball was visible to me. I'm standing there. The ball is right there. The kids can't see the ball. And they got parents on this stand and parents on that stand. Get the ball. Tag him. And they're screaming. Now, I'm the coach. I can't say, hey, kid, the ball's right there. I can't do it. I just have to sit there. They figure it out. But I don't do anything except wait for the kid to figure it out, pick the ball up. And, uh, you know, it was a very vital game. Don't you remember? And this lady came up to me afterwards. She said, I want to thank you because it was her kid that couldn't find the ball. He was a third baseman. He was looking around, couldn't find the ball. And she said, I want to thank you for not yelling at my son. She said, I, probably when you really wanted to. And I thought, oh, she was watching because everything inside of me wanted to say, pick up the ball. <laughs> um, he's right there. But she was watching. And I'm a preacher. And it wouldn't have looked good, would it? And so I was, I was glad that I didn't. People are watching. 
They're watching people in the midst of their storms. As Christians, we belong to God. Don't ever forget that. We're his property. When we know we belong to God, we, are see, we see ourselves as his property that he protects. As Paul was told last night, Paul says, an angel of the God whose I am, of whom I serve, stood beside me. We belong to God like a bride belongs to her groom. In Hebrew, it's ani la dividi va dividi li. My beloved is mine and I'm his. Say that together with me. Ani la dividi va dividi li. Yeah. <laughs> it's the only time in tongues you'll hear a tongue speaking here. Note also in Ephesians 5, uh, how Paul describes the marriage union. This is a profound mystery. He said, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Talking about how, how men love their wives as Christ loved the church. As how, how, how the wives are to be submissive to their husbands and all things. And he says, look, this fits the mystery of how Christ is related to his church. We belong to God like sheep to a shepherd. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the father knows me, I know the father. We belong to him like a child belongs to his father. My, my children are mine. They belong to me. Uh, I made them. I raised them. I love them. That's why father and mother give their child away at a wedding. You know, better be someone worthy of taking my baby or I will basically kill them. So well, that's just... <laughs> I look forward to saying that tonight, Grant, in case you're that person. All dads say that. Most of us don't mean it. But. And you'll know exactly what it means when you have a little girl, too. Paul says uh, that we belong to God because he bought us. Paul says this. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have received from God, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. Remember that when you feed yourself trash. Remember that when you allow trash to enter your mind, your eyes, you listen to it. Remember that when you're hanging with the wrong people. Remember that when you're doing with your body what you're not supposed to do. You don't belong to you. God bought us at a price. Paul knows who he belongs to. I belong to God. Nothing's going to happen to me outside of what God allows to happen to me because I belong to him. Because we belong to God, knowing that we are here to do his business, the God whose I am, whom I serve, like verse 23 says, like Paul, we know that nothing can or will harm us unless God allows it. Often he does, but not always. You can get hurt as a Christian. You can be Hurt physically, you can be maimed physically, and you can be killed. There is nothing in Scripture that says we are not going to get hurt as Christians. Nothing. Jesus never said that. In fact, we're looking at a passage this, this next Sunday where Jesus says, when you face your persecutors, when it happens, when you come under fire, it's going to happen. Uh, and yet it is preached today in so many churches, so many people, that, that God does wants you to be healthy and wealthy. And if you're suffering in any way, it just means your faith is no good. That's called a false teacher. That's not what Jesus said. Recall there was another storm at sea in the Bible where a man was not confident in his God and where the sea swallowed him. Jonah had no such anchor for his soul. He did not trust God. He did not trust that he was God's. God told him, you're going to go here. He said, oh, no, I'm not. You don't tell me what to do. I'm not going to Nineveh. Yeah. Isn't that the great joke? You want to make God laugh? You tell him your plans. 
No, Lord, here's, I've got a better idea. I'm not going to the Ninevites. I've got an even better idea. You're going to the Ninevites, and in the interim, you're going to get swallowed by a big fish and live in there for three days. We too can show the same courage Paul did in the face of danger if we simply believe God. You know, I, I sometimes make a difference between I believe in God or I believe God. I don't know if there's a, maybe only I see a difference in there. Maybe there is no difference. But I believe in God in the sense that I believe who he is, what he is. But I believe God. If he said it, I believe him. That's what faith is. That word faith is the word believe. Did you know that? Every time you see the word believe in the New Testament, it's the word faith in the Greek text. It's called pistis. In the verb form, it's pistuo. I believe or, or I trust. Pistis is just faith or belief. Same word for belief, trust, faith. Same word. If our hearts bear the anchors of the Lord's presence, ownership and service, we will be able to stand tall in any storm. I love this one. Donald Gray Barnhouse, you may or may not know him, he's a pastor, of, old pastor of a Presbyterian church in Philadelphia. Uh, he and his wife used to hold one another accountable during times when the lack of faith crept in. Recalling Romans 8, 28, one would say to the other, well, we think that all things work together for good, unquote. At that, the other would be brought, brought up short and would say, for we know that all things work together for good. I don't know how well that would go over in your family. When times are struggling and you, you don't know, and um, maybe your spouse should say something like, well, you know, we think that God's working all things together for good. Do we just think it in the sense that it might be, or do we know? We know. We know it. And we need that kind of accountability. What are you moping around here for? What are you worried about? I have the hardest time at this church trying not to run the church trying not to own it. It's not my church. It is not my church. This is God's church. He puts people in it. We're his servants. That's all we are. I don't even like the word leaders. We are servants in his church, his church, but I want to run it. Here's what I need to be do. We need to do this. We need to do that. And decisions do need to be made, but are they in God's interest or they're in mine? Uh, it's his church and I'm his servant. Go around cracking the whip like I'm the leader here uh, is, a, is a bad, bad thing. <laughs> Why so many storms and shipwrecks? Why? Why can't you just put us on a nice cruise ship, Lord, and make it all smooth sailing? Why? Why indeed? <laughs> Certainly God can spare us these as he could have spared Paul and just taken him to Rome to preach Christ. That's what we like. That's what I want. Yeah, we would. We wouldn't need him anymore. But God allows many storms to come our ways over the course of our lives. He does so to reveal his glory to and through us because he loves us and desires to give us sufficient grace to endure and remain faithful to him. That's what he's doing. He's teaching us along the way. Can Satan sometimes be to blame? For these difficulties, Paul says this, he says, for we wanted to come to you. Certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan stopped us. That's what he tells the Thessalonians after he got kicked out. So he's saying Satan stopped us. Yeah, but we know from the book of Job that if it's Satan that hinders us, he got permission from God to do it. Satan can't do anything without God's permission. So blame Satan all you want. 
but he got permission from God to do it. So it's God ordained. Why is this happening? Well, it's Satan. Satan's our enemy. Satan really doesn't have to do a whole lot. I think most of Satan's work is just autopilot. He knows what, what, uh, what we all fall for. Same things. Money, sex, and power. That's, those are the three lures in his tackle box. If one doesn't work, he's going to put the other one on, and the other one's going to work. One of those is going to work for us, against us. As I said earlier, are we objective-oriented or are we process-oriented? I think we're objective-oriented. God is more of a process-oriented God. Most of the time, we just want to get to Rome. We think God owes us an easy time of things, yet he seems more interested in how we get there. Lord, I really want wisdom. I remember... Solomon prayed for wisdom, and he got it. He was a fool. Lord, can I have that wisdom just overnight? Would that be okay? No. No. Process, Lance. Process of getting married, staying married, having children, having a job, going to school, getting through this, getting sick, getting this, getting that. Process. Who am I today that I wasn't 10 years ago, that I wasn't 25 years ago? Who are you today? What are the processes of life brought you to uh, all kinds of amazing testimonial stories about who we once were and how the process of life brought us to where we are. And as a pastor, I know so many of your stories. You shared them with me in, the, in your testimonies. I'm so better for that's the best part of the job is to sit back and read how someone came to know Christ, how bad their lives were, what God did along the way. I say go out and let your story be a blessing to somebody else. That's one of the reasons you have it. We must be aware of the fact that our storms can also be for others good. We learn all about people through their storms, good and bad. The imminent threat of death on Paul's ship revealed the secrets of each man's character. And Paul was head and shoulders above them all. He used to play basketball with a guy that I loved. I thought he was a great guy. Uh, And he, and he, he probably is, but not when he played basketball. He was a top-notch jerk, and, and he, he was mean. And uh, whatever friendship you may have had, that we may have had together. And look, it's, it's not like I'm a threat to anybody on the basketball court. <laughs> you know, I mean, if I'm six foot eight and I'm slamming it back in your face, okay, be mad at me. But I'm five eight with, with shoes on. And I have to play twice as hard to be half as good. I'm not. Anyway, he would just get so mad. Threw the ball at, at, at one of my buddies one day, whom he was also friends with. You're a jerk, man. I mean, under duress of a, of a basketball game? Come on. You learn about who people are when you play sports with them. What things. But certainly when they're in the difficulties of life. What have people learned about you in, in the difficulties of your life? That you're a whiner and complainer? Or that God's on the throne? So a couple questions for application. What storms threaten to take you under? Here are a couple of anchors I offer to you to throw down. Number one, God's presence. Uh, remembering what Paul said, an angel of the God whose I am, whom I serve, stood beside me. I believe that angel is Christ. That's why I said earlier, God's presence, he's always with us. He's omnipresent anyway. So when a storm in your life is threatening to take you under, and you don't hear God, where's God? The question is, where are you? Anchor number two, God's ownership of you. You belong to him, the God and whose I am. You either belong to him or you don't. If you belong to him, how precious are you? Hold on. How precious are you that it took the death of Jesus to own you? I can't think of the quote completely, but it, 
it's been attributed to Charles Spurgeon is how valuable is a soul of man when both the devil and the almighty creator God are out for that person. That's a pretty mighty, powerful ownership. If we're owned by God, if the blood of Jesus was shed for me, and I know it is because I've received him. If I've received him, then that blood, some of the blood was for me. I'm his child. I have two children and there's just nothing I wouldn't do for them. There's nothing I wouldn't do to protect them. Um, if I had 20, if I could keep up with 20, it would be the same way. God's ownership of us, that's an anchor of the soul. God, you own me. You know me. You may not feel it, but you know it's true. That's why truth is better than feeling. Always go to the truth, not what you feel. The third anchor is service to God, the God in whom I serve. The God in whom I serve. Sometimes serving God is the answer to your depression, to your difficulty. I'm going to go forth and serve God. He died for me. I'm going to go serve him. I'm not going to ask questions. I'm not going to try to feel better. I'm just going to go serve this God. A fourth anchor is your faith. So keep up your courage, men. For I have faith in the God that it will happen just as he told me. When you know something, you haven't seen it, but you know it's going to happen. Paul knew. I would tell anyone, keep up your faith. You're about to die. You've just been diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer. You're probably, you're knocking at death's door with stage four pancreatic cancer. But take heart. The God whom I serve takes us out of this body of death and into eternal life by receiving Jesus. I believe it. This is what Paul is saying. I have faith in God. That's what we know. With these anchors, you will stand strong, emerge from your storm, and have a great witness for Christ, and be better for it. That's what it's for. So when we pray, we'll ask that God's presence and rule in our lives preserve our trust in Him through our many storms. We'll ask that God not allow the winds and waves to drag us aside from serving Him faithfully, wholeheartedly, and courageously. We'll ask that when we must decide whether to believe the circumstances or our sovereign Lord, that we will always choose to trust in him and that others will see Christ in us and come to know him through our example, through the struggles of life that we face. I see that in Acts 27. There's probably other, maybe better things to see, but I see it as life storms. Let's pray. Lord, life is a, is a process. You've shown us that. We'd like to just get there and enjoy the benefits of knowing you. But I pray that we would learn to enjoy the benefits of knowing you in the process, along the way. Strengthen us. May we be seen peaceful and loving in the midst of the darkest days of our lives. May people see Christ living in us. They may be depressing and we may be sad through them. We're human, but I pray that we would also be joyful. Maybe not happy, but joyful. That the joy of Jesus Christ our Lord would flow through us. May it be for our benefit, the benefit of others, and for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon by Dr. Lance Waldy, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Cypress, Texas. 